I might just pray for Sally and the kids before they go out as well. Father, thanks for the awesome ministry that we've had for so many years with Sunday School, the faithful few that teach and lead. And it's not just about teaching, it's also about modelling certain Christ-like behaviours and wanting them to grow into that. And it can be challenging with kids. I just pray that you bring a real sense of peace over all of them and a sense of wanting to learn. Thank you and bless each of the teachers and each of the kids today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome everyone. We're actually in the mega 34, mega being meet God almighty. And it's number, no, sorry, 35, 35. Well, I, you don't know what I'm about to say yet. Maybe I want to be back here just a bit for... Oh, good. All right. Uh, so just while I'm sort of gearing up here, if you, if you want to, you can turn to Judges 17. As you know, we've been in Judges in our mega series, and our mega series is all about seeking the face, sorry, seeking God in the Old Testament, meeting God Almighty, seeking God in the Old Testament, and finding the face of Jesus. And you come to Judges 17, which is the end of Judges, really. It's the last little portion of Judges, and you just think, wow, what should I name this sermon? So I thought to myself, of a few working titles, I'll just get there. I don't have too many slides today. I had all these fancy names, and in the end, I just thought, I'm going to call it Vile. And maybe you'll see why shortly. I'm going to call it Vile. That's one of my working titles. Uh, who here has never read Judges 17 through to 21? Good. So you probably already know why I've called it vile then, because there's a lot of vile things that happen. Matter of fact, there's a part of Judges 17 through to 21 where a particular person says, don't do this vile thing. And you kind of begin to wonder, why would that person want to do a vile thing? And why are there so many vile things occurring? And this little part of Judges is actually quite interesting because up till now, there's been a very clear cycle. Up to now, pretty much most of Judges has been the people of Israel promising to follow God, the people of Israel following every idol in the land, we're told, not just one, but every single one back earlier on in Judges. Then we're finding that they go into drought, they go into uh, persecution from their enemies. God rages, raises up a judge and that judge delivers them. But as Ben pointed out so well, what we're finding as we've gone through judges is each judge has got worse and worse. You know, we start off with very cool judges like Deborah. They seem very noble, very faithful to God. Then we get to Gideon. He's a bit of a mixed bag. And then finally we get to Samson. And what can we say about Samson? Well, we said a lot last week. Go and have a look at Samson. And then it's almost like it's the writer or whoever's put together judges. Some people think it's Samuel, the prophet Samuel. It's almost like he's gone, well, there's no more judges. These judges have got worse and worse. Let's just finish off with a little snapshot into what life would be like in the time of the judges. And so what you see from Judges 17 through to 21 is sort of household life, political life, military life, and priestly life. And the whole way through Judges, I don't know about you, but I've been thinking, where is the tabernacle? I don't know if you've noticed. It's, it's very... It's, it's glaringly obvious by its absence. Where is the tabernacle? Where are the priests? It's really interesting because we see all this horrible stuff happening all the way through Judges and over and over again, there's this like, where is the tabernacle? Where are the priests? They're not mentioned. They're not mentioned until now. And this is very interesting. 
Very interesting because there's some things that are going to happen after Judges that are really, really significant in the, in the life of the people of God. So that was my first working title. My second working title is True North. True North. They seem to be in stark contrast with one another. So True North, I'm a pilot, as you know. Uh, it's also known as Geodetic North. So that's the north that's mapped on your maps. Okay, but did you know there's another thing called Magnetic North? And Magnetic North and True North are not the same. Magnetic North uh, is simply the way your compass aligns with the magnetic lines of the Earth. And it drifts, that magnetic drifts from True North about 0.2 degrees every year. So any sort of map that you get, you'll find there'll be a little, somewhere in the legend, there'll be a little pointer with True North, and then there'll be a bit of a diversity or disparity with probably 10 or 11, depending on how old the map is, degrees worth of magnetic north. Magnetic north drifts, uh, like I said, 0.2 degrees every year. Now, we know that in general society, we're often told or asked, what is your true north? The idea being, what is your moral compass? You know, what, what, is, what is your value system? And it's this idea of true north that actually drives a lot of our behaviours. This idea of what is right and what is wrong. And our desires can get into our behaviours and actually bring about a magnetic variance from true north. And you can get a compass. I was going to bring my silver compass from my army days and let you uh, have a look at it. You can hold it. And it will point north. And as you get further and further south, it will keep pointing north. And then it'll start to do something weird. Because what do the, uh, the magnetic lines do as you get closer to the poles? They actually, they're, they're kind of parallel with the Earth's surface. And then they go perpendicular. So the poor old compass doesn't know which way to turn. Or you could be walking along. You could walk next to uh, someone with a phone. And your magnetic north, once again, will vary. But on your compass, you go, oh, no, it's, it's still pointing north, but you'll be doing these ones. And I've done that in the army a few times. <laughs> if you leave something metallic next to these magnetic compasses, even inside an aircraft, they actually have um, a mag still with all the modern gadgetry that we have in modern aircraft, the lights, colour, motion of multifunction displays and so forth, we have a magnetic compass and it's the one Biggles flew with. So it's exactly the same. And it has a little thing next to it that tells you, watch out at certain uh, latitudes. Yeah, latitudes. Uh, these errors occur and don't have anything metal next to it or whatever. So I'm obviously using that as a guiding metaphor to go, what is your true north? Um, what, what, what is affecting that true north, i.e. what things can actually bring about a change? And what we're going to do is we're going to just do a zoom over of Judges 17 to 21. And we're just going to ask as at key points, I'm just going to bring out little vignettes, little stories. We can't read all of it today, but I encourage you to go and turn it, go and look at it yourself later. Bring out little vignettes and go, what is, what is the true north of these people? What is happening here? And remember as well my first working title, Vile. Because we might think, well, I'm not going to do some of the terrible things that we see here. And I'm just conscious we've got kids, so I might even skip over some bits. You can go and read them later yourself. But how did they get from there, to, as in from being the people of God, to there? Now remember as well, I was just reading before I came, uh, Exodus about the tabernacle. And there's this one point, it's like there's all this stuff that has to be done with the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the altars, the priesthood. And then there's this word, and I will dwell amongst them. I will, God, I will dwell amongst them. This is why I asked at the start, where's the tabernacle? 
because the tabernacle is where they're supposed to go to seek forgiveness. There's a, there's a means of sacrifice. There's grace in the law to bring about repentance and redemption. That's also where they're supposed to go to get leading from God. It's, I will dwell amongst them. Think about this all the time through the judges. And as we go through here, I will dwell amongst them. Where is the tabernacle? Where is God's presence dwelling? It's quite shocking to think that all this stuff is happening and somewhere is the tabernacle and somewhere is God's presence where they're supposed to go and it's just been completely ignored. So what we're going to do is just going to to read through a few bits um, and like I said, bring out this question, what is their true north? And what you're going to see is the small scale household stuff all the way up to the massive political stuff. You're going to see that sin has got in and distorted everything. They are following their own magnetic north. They are not following true north anymore. So 17.1, Judges 17.1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me and I took it. This is quite strange. We've just had the death of Samson. Now we've just got this little kind of story shoved in there. And it's just someone that's stolen some money from their mum, hasn't told them about it, and is now telling about it. And it's really interesting because it's like, oh, initially you think, oh, good, he's given it back. Maybe there's been some repentance, some conviction. But look what happens next. His mother says, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver, which is a lot, and he said to his mother, or sorry, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. You think, oh, good, excellent. So you can give it to the people for, you know, maybe the Levites to help them out or something. But then keep reading. For my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. So there's a break in the narrative of judges. The literary structure has changed here. Had has gone from the cycle of the judges to here's some snapshots of what life is like. And we won't have time to go into all the detail, but what you find is this actual this last part is not chronological. It's back towards probably somewhere a third of the way through the period of judges of about 400 years, and they're just trying to show you what it looks like to live in a time where everyone just does whatever they want. So this mother, her true north says, "Oh, you're giving it back to me. I'll give it to God." But it's like all mixed up with idols. And that is because, as we were told earlier in Judges, um, the Israelites pretty much worshipped every god that was in the land. So there was an idol to Molech, there was an idol to Ashtoreth, to Baal, and here's one to probably Yahweh. So anyway, this guy, he returns the silver to his mother. She takes 200 shekels and gives them to the silversmith. Wait a minute, there was 1,100. Hmm. Now you see, like, just, just a little sin, really. Just a little sin. No one's getting cut apart here just yet. But do you see what's happening? It's like, okay, I think my true north is saying do something for God and then the reality of 1,100 shekels, whoa, okay, we'll make it 200. Look, it's her money to give. She could have done, she could have given one shekel or even a tenth and been quite, instead it's just 200. Again, corruption, but self-righteous corruption. She thinks she's doing the right thing. And this is such a warning to us because often people do the wrong thing for the right reasons, the right rationale. So at verse four, they make it into an image and an idol and they were put in this guy's house, Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, had a shrine and he made an ephod and some idols. He installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did as he saw fit. You can just write those words down and not really get it. You can get it in the head, but not really in the heart. What these next chapters do are they're trying to show you what that looks like for the average person on the ground. Then in verse 7, we're told a young Levite. This is the first time 
anything to do with the priesthood is mentioned. This Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he's been living within the clan of Judah. He left that town in search of some other place to stay. So evidently, because of the, all the idolatry, there's no real money and income for the priests anymore. The priests have to go out and the Levites have to go out and actually make their own way, make their own money. That's not in accordance with the law of God. The law of God said that these people would be supplied everything they needed by the rest of the tribes. But of course, all that's gone out the window. So Micah says in verse 9, he says, where are you from? He says, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. And I'm looking for a place to stay. And Micah said to him, live with me, be my father and priest. And I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. And then in verse 13, Micah says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. So again, he's kind of got this idea that, and you'll see later on, there are other idols in the house. I'll take this priest. He'll make sure that Yahweh kind of stays happy with me. This idea of um, keep the priest here. Failing to see that the priest is not supposed to be a personal priest. The priests are supposed to be at the tabernacle, and they're supposed to be serving God there. Then in, verse, uh, in chapter 18, verse 1, it says again, Israel had no king. Now remember what I said before, and I will dwell amongst them. The idea is that God would be their king. The idea is that they would take all their needs, their political aspirations, etc. to God, and God would act as the presence amongst them as their king. And instead, everyone's just off doing their own thing. And I won't go on a whole bunch of detail here, but in, ver- in chapter 18, we're told about the Danites who just decide they want some extra land and they stumble upon Micah's house and they find out that there's a priest there. And so we're told there that and there's five spies that have gone out. So after they have talked to Micah and seen the priest there, they go back and they talk to the rest of the Danites and they mention that the fact that there's a, a priest there. And then if you go into, say, verse 14 or so, then the five men who had spied out the land of Lahish said to their brothers, do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, a carved image and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. Actually, there's also the priest of Levi there, the Levites there. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's house and greeted him. So Micah goes out the front door and there's 600 ferocious looking warriors. And so now they basically steal this priest from Micah And we won't go into the rest of the detail, but they basically go and take out these cities. And the the person who has written Judges says in 27, against a peaceful and unsuspecting people. So he's trying to make a comment there. These people, the Danites have just gone off, raged war. And then we're told in verse 30, there the Danites set up for themselves the idols. And Jonathan, this is the first time we're told the Levite's name, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. So that's where we're told where the tabernacle is. And he makes a point of saying it was in Shiloh. And now for many years, these probably generations, because it's not only just Jonathan but his sons, continue to promote idolatry in the name of Yahweh. This is the land of God's people. This is the shining light on a hill. This is God's kingdom people in the time of the judges. And then we get to what I just can't really describe as anything else but absolutely vile in chapter 19. And perhaps it'll be better rather than read through each of it, I just describe and probably try to give you the G-rated version. But essentially, we're now told about another Levite. Now, isn't it interesting that 
Whoever's writing judges is very keen to tell us about what the Levites are up to. And they're up to no good. They are corrupt. They're just as corrupt as anyone else. So this Levite in verse 1 of chapter 19 has a concubine. Now you have to understand our English word concubine is not probably a good translation. Probably she was like a second wife or a third wife, but she didn't have rights to the inheritance or the blessing of being the first wife. She leaves her husband and then she ends up with her father for four months and her husband goes after her to persuade her. Now we're going to find out shortly why she might have left. So I'll just tell you, he's a misogynistic pig. That's why he left. That's probably why she left. And we're going to find that out very shortly. There's nothing really redeeming about him. Shortly you're going to see him cause the death of his wife, second wife or third wife. You're going to see him start all out war over it. You're going to see him treat her without mercy or compassion. And that is because he is just doing what his true north, magnetic north, is telling him to do. That is look after his own sorry skin. So anyway, like I said, I won't go into all the detail because we don't have time today. But the Levite goes to the father's house. And what you see in the story is the father saying, oh, just stay a little bit longer. Stay a bit longer. And he convinces, obviously, the Levite convinces the father to be able to take his, his daughter, take his concubine, take his second wife back. But you can see, you, can, you read between the lines, you can see pretty clearly that the, the, the father is sort of bound by this honour-shame culture. He knows his, his daughter should not have left. But you can tell he wants her to stay because he keeps, keeps coming up with this excuse. I'll just stay a little bit longer. It's late. Here, have some more food. Have some. You can see the father's heart. He's trying to keep her. But he doesn't want to outright say, no, you can't have her because he knows that in that tradition, this honour and shame thing, he has shamed the fam- she has shamed the family because she has gone and decided to leave her Levite husband. So over and over again, you see this, oh, just refresh yourself, just stay. And you kind of get this feeling, he, he doesn't want her to go. He wants to keep her, but he's bound by this culture and culture has become his conscience. Now his conscience drives him towards his behavior. He should, he, should have, he should have protected her, looked after her. But the culture is saying, no, 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 you need, you need let, let, let her go with this man. And she's probably already told him about what he's like. So anyway, they get on the road. The Levite, the priest, probably, the man of God. Remember, he's wearing this name more so than any other Israelite. They get on the road in verse 16, and uh, initially they want to stay at a particular town, Jabus, and they go, no, we won't, which is actually the early version of Jerusalem. They go, no, we won't go there. They're all pagans. We'll stay away from them. So it's ironic, isn't it, because of what's about to happen next. We'll keep going to our own clansmen. So anyway, uh, in verse 17, we're told that when he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? So they're basically inside this town now, this Benjamite town. And he says, uh, the Levite says, we're on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem in Judah and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves and your servants, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. So this old man, he's doing the right thing. He says, you're welcome into my house. The old man said, let me supply whatever you need. And so they go into the house in verse 22. While they're enjoying themselves, probably hungry, having a good feed, etc., the wicked men of the city surround the house and then pounding on the door they shout to the old man who owned the house bring out the man who came with you and obviously they want to do things that i won't mention in a g-rated sermon so the owner of the house now notice again here the corruption the variance from true north to magnetic north true north would say 
protect this woman. True North would probably say, we need to cry out to Yahweh for deliverance. But instead, the owner of the house, the old man, who in one way has shown hospitality, but now it's this horrible, corrupted hospitality. My friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. And you think, cool, just stop there. Full stop, full stop. No. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. So not only the concubine, but the virgin daughter. Now, do you know why I'm calling it vile? Just go out, do what you want with them. You know, like who... We feel like this is a far horizon from us in many ways. We feel that this couldn't possibly happen in our society. And yet I'm here to tell you, I work in an industry where you see a lot of these things. Next week, we'll hear about that. You know, sex trafficking and so forth. Is that not the same as, here, just take her and do whatever you want with her? At a massive cultural level, worse than it's ever been in all of history. Because everybody does as they see fit. Everybody follows their true north. I encourage you to come next week and hear and talk to your kids about it. And and if you think it's something they need to hear as well, then, you know, at an age appropriate thing, let them hear it. We need to hear it. We need to pray about it. We need to see what God would have us do as his kingdom people. Or will we just sit back and go, hmm, this is a disgusting story. Glad I'm not a part of it. Well, you can actually be part of the solution. You could encourage Letitia and Nadine next week by just coming and maybe helping and Maybe giving some money and so forth. That's the least we can do, I reckon. Anyway, the men don't listen. So, of course, out goes the concubine. And again, it's a G-rated sermon, so I won't say what they do, but it's terrible, it's disgusting, it's atrocious, it's appalling, it breaks my heart. But what happens next, I find even more appalling. You know, like, this guy goes to bed and he sleeps all night. Like, he's not even, doesn't even care. He's not even, like, he's not even, like, you know, trying to look around the, the door sill or something to see. Like, he just goes to bed. It just shows what value he has put on this woman, who is a Margot Day, by the way. She is just as much the image of God as he is. And he's just, oh, do what you want, as long as I'm okay. If there was, you know, you might have thought it was, thought it was harsh of me to call him a misogynist. I don't know a better version or a better definition or a better picture of a misogynist than this. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, so note that, he's gone, oh, time to go. He's already, he probably already thinks she's gone and dead or something. So he's about, oh, she's in my way. He goes, get up, let's go. But what, what happens in the heart of a person that they can be so callous and so cruel as to just leave that woman there, that precious woman who is precious in God's sight? I can just feel like God's thunder starting to burn, you know, like, and trust me, there will be judgment for this. In his own purposes, he is delaying that judgment, but there will be judgment if you don't feel a righteous anger about this. And this is a religious man. This is a Levite. The, the priesthood is completely corrupted. And we go, oh, completely corrupted. That's just words. They leave the concubine woman. He leaves it just lying. That's a priest that just leaves her lying in the doorway. Uh, and, and, you know, get up, get up. Do you know what's interesting here? The man puts her on this donkey in verse 28. We're not actually sure whether she's dead yet. Okay, She may well have died on the donkey in his care. I don't know how to clean this next bit up, so I'll encourage you as parents to talk to your kids about this. It's in the Bible. He takes her body and he cuts her up and he sends pieces to all the tribes. And he says, look what disgusting things these Benjamites have done. Think about it, consider it, tell us what to do. He knows exactly what's about to happen next. But what about all his sin and culpability? He doesn't tell them, oh, I'll just give you the full story. I actually sent her out there. 
He wouldn't dare do that. You know why? Because most misogynists are cowards. They're actually covering up a whole bunch of insecurities that they have and they bash their wives, they take it out on their wives or they take it out on women or they talk about how you know, ridiculous women are or how pathetic women are because deep down they are incredibly insecure and they're just covering their own butts and they go from being a Margot Day, beautiful men of God or supposed to be beautiful men of God to ugly, distorted, twisted, just doing whatever they want. And yeah, we've, we've used that in our society as a, a call for freedom. Just do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt other people. Well, here we have it. The leave. You can't be neutral over these things. You just can't. We are all interconnected. We're all relational beings. What we do, even if it's nothing, affects someone outside that door. We do nothing. That horrible stuff keeps going on outside the door. And God hates it. You know, it's, it's interesting because Jesus could have done exactly the same thing. He could have gone planet Earth. I'll let you keep living. Just do what you want. And stay outside the door, rape, murder, pillage. I'll just start. No, he actually comes out and becomes a victim himself. It's like he breaks through the door and you're expecting thunder and lightning and he goes, take me instead. That is the gospel. And here in Judges, it's like by absence, it's like this incredible evil. And you go, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And then you think of Jesus and you go, oh, yeah. I see where you are. This is creating a great need for Jesus, a need for a savior, the need for someone to come and Get us out of our horrible behavior because of our magnetic north variation, our true north that is so corrupted. So then in, ver- in chapter 20, verse 1, the story continues and it starts to get even, even worse in many ways. You might think, how can it get worse, Adrian, than cutting up a woman? Well, I'll tell you why in a minute, because the cutting up of a woman is a direct result of the process of understanding God's will in chapter 20 and chapter 21. So you can imagine what happens next. The Benjamites... Uh, target number one. And so they end up with 400,000 soldiers from the rest of the tribes. Some don't go, some do. And they besiege the Benjamites. They give them a chance. They give them a chance and they say, hey, give us the men. Give us the men that did this and we'll leave you alone. They say, no, we're keeping them. And in verse 13, we're told, surrender those wicked men of Gibeah so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. They're using very Levitical type language that purge the evil from Israel. You'll see it in Exodus and Leviticus, where the idea is God's presence is dwelling there in all of its holiness. And so the idea is if, if there's sin in the camp, if there's terrible things going on, that God's holiness is going to burn it, purge it. So they're using religious language. And they think they are now in God's will. So the Benjamites don't listen, and they come together. And the Benjamites are way, way outnumbered. There's 26,000 um, swordsmen and then additionally 700 chosen men from those living in Gibeah. And then in verse 16, among all these soldiers, there's 700 chosen men who are left-handed with a sling stone. Now we think of slings, if, who's had a sling as a kid? Slingshot. A little bit different. The slingshot's the why, you know. Uh, this is a big, long length with a loop and using momentum and tangential energy, you swing it. You don't do the whole wind up. There's actually, and by the way, these were not little tiny pebbles. These were anywhere from golf ball size to baseball size projectiles. And they found ancient slings and ancient stones and done estimations and tests 400 meters. (laughs) You can push these things 400 meters In ancient cultures, people were trained. So in some cultures, what they would do is they would put a bit of bread on a stick at 100 metres. They didn't eat until they hit the bread on the stick with these sling stones. 
And there's actually stories of they didn't actually aim for your head, they aimed for your eye or your nose, or that's how good they were, that's how accurate they were. Uh, Malcolm Gla uh, Gladwell, who wrote a book, I think it's Goliath, he goes into great detail about this. So now Benjamin has a tactical advantage. And here's where it gets a little bit squirrely, a little bit interesting, because now God's brought into the picture. Now I want you to notice something, because what we're told here is God says, go up against the Benjamites, Judah shall go first. But notice something here. Remember how I said there's Yahweh, then there was the idols? Because what really uh, got under my skin here a bit was it's God saying go up first. And then what happens is the Benjamites ab absolutely trounce the Israelites, probably because of their tactical advantage with these slingshots. They cut down 22,000. So the Israelites, they weep before the Lord until evening. They inquire of the Lord. By the way, they've done all their inquiring of the Lord just in some random spot. They haven't gone to Shiloh. They haven't actually tried to work out from God where he told them to go. Instead, they're just doing their own thing. But we're told earlier on in chapter 20 that they draw lots. So the Israelites draw lots to see whether they should go up against uh, Benjamin. So 20 verse 9, but now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it as the lot directs. And later on, we're told it's God telling them. And I've thought long and hard about this. And I honestly believe that they have become so corrupt at this point that they believe they're hearing from God and they're not. And so that's why you get this weird kind of thing. God says, oh, Judah first. Is it God? Is it really God saying that? We're told many times in the Bible where God's saying something and it's not. Job's friends, faithfully recorded, speaking in God's voice, but often not, and actually rebuked at the end of Job. Uh, remember the Assyrian commander in Isaiah and also when uh, Hezekiah is under siege, he says, Yahweh says this to you. So I honestly believe at this point here, their moral compass is so twisted and distorted that they are now believing they are doing things in the name of God. And what I find really troubling about that is when you think through history, this isn't a strange thing. Many people over many centuries have done things in the name of God. And I believe probably towards the end, maybe God does actually intervene and give them a message from him. But I honestly believe, having seen the great weight of contextual flow in Judges, that that's not God speaking. They think they're hearing God speaking, but it's not. And so over and over again, you see this, oh, kind of go up against the Benjamites, get trounced, thousands of them die, do it again, thousands of them die. Eventually, they use an ancient tactic, so they pretend to be falling back again, but this time they've set up an ambush and they absolutely annihilate the Benjamites, absolutely annihilate them until there's hardly any left. Then they go into the towns of Benjamite in verse uh, 47, 48, and they put everything to the sword, animals, everything. All the towns they come across, they set on fire. And then in chapter 21, we're told the people went to Bethel in verse 2, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today. It's like, duh. Yeah, again, they take it to God's footstep and they say, oh, this is you because they have, I believe, a distorted view of God's sovereignty. I don't believe God's sovereignty means he meticulously determines every single thing. And I know this is controversial. I believe, as the psalmist says, that God is in the heavens. He does whatever he desires, whatever he wants, but the earth he has given over to man. So he has given the earth over. You get to choose. The Benjamites chose not to give over the men of Gibeah. The men of Gibeah chose to do that disgusting thing. The Levite chose to put his concubine out there. That wasn't God. God, for his own purposes, has allowed that. I don't know why, but there's a grand purpose in the future. I trust him because I trust what he's done on the cross. 
But here it's all back onto, oh God of Israel, why has this happened? And then it just keeps getting worse. And it's funny because as you get, it's not funny, funny, it's actually terrible. But as you get further and further into chapter 21, for example, in verse 6, the Israelites grieve for their brothers, the Benjamites. Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel. How can we get wives so that they can continue to you know, be a tribe? So look what they do next. They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp and to the assembly. That's in verse 8. When they counted the people, in verse 9, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So all that Jabesh Gilead have done, we think this is a bad idea. We're not going to go and wipe out the Benjamites. We're staying where we are. So in verse 10, the assembly sends 12,000 fighting men to Jabesh Gilead to put to sword those living there, including the women and the children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. It's just vile. It's just vile. And again, it's being done sort of in the name of God. So that's what they do. And they end up with 400 young women who are now probably terrorized, taken stripped from their families. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace. By the way, that whole assembly, that's a religious term as well. It's like the congregation. Again, you've got this horrible, twisted religion. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the, woman, the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared. But there's not enough. We can't give them our own daughters. Since we Israelites have taken this oath, the oath was we won't be giving any of our daughters to them. Perhaps this is why Jesus later on would say, don't make stupid oaths. And if you do, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need to make oaths if you're a truthful person. An oath is only necessary if you probably have in the past not shown trustworthiness. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, here is the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh. What did I say was in Shiloh? The tabernacle. The tabernacle's still there. And I will dwell amongst them. That's what the tabernacle represented. And I will dwell amongst them. So there is a feast going on. So there's a feast. And now have a look at this. Let's just read this. So the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh probably is the Passover to the north of Bethel and the east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem. So they instruct the Benjamites saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch when the girls of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing. Then rush from the vineyards and each of you sees a wife from the girls of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do to us a kindness by helping them because we did not get wives for them during the war and you are innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. So see how this moral corruption is rationalizing. So they don't want to be in trouble for giving them their own wives or own daughters. Or So they're happy to go and kidnap a whole bunch of people. Just, it just, there's no wonder why atheists sometimes go, some of the stuff in the Bible sounds like ISIS. It honestly does. You know why it sounds like ISIS? Because it probably is. You've got a whole bunch of corrupt people who are supposed to know better, who are supposed to be the kingdom of God on earth. They're supposed to show... God's kingdom values, even in an early form. And instead, they're just as bad, in fact, worse than everyone else. So that's what the Benjamites did. So the girls, you imagine the girls, imagine your daughters, they're at this festival. There are probably people that love God because they're actually practicing and doing this festival. And all of a sudden, these atrocious men burst out, grab them and take them away. And now we wrap up judges. (laughs) At that time, the Israelites left the place, went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. And it wraps up with this. In those days, Israel had no king, Everyone did as he saw fit. The king that they didn't have was God. Though his tabernacle, the the last thing that you see in Judges, the last thing you see in Judges is his tabernacle. What's the word? Sacrilege, contaminated, like the women are there. They're celebrating probably the Passover. They've had a feast. There's been sacrifices made for the repentance of sin. There's been uh, the glorification of God. And suddenly these men, they, 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 oh man. In the name of Yahweh, in the name of God, they, they bring this contamination, this terrible sin and atrocity to the tabernacle. And that is where whoever wrote Judges goes, that's what it looks like. Do you, do you feel that in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit? 
Do you feel that more? I don't want to finish, I'm nearly finished. But that's where Judges finishes and I think we should actually go, okay, Judges finishes there for a reason. And we should go, okay, there's so many different lessons in here, all the way from that lady at the beginning who goes, yeah, I'll give you 1,100 shekels, thank you for giving that money back and I'll make an idol and now it'll just be 200. Just small sins, all the way to massive, disgusting, putrid sins. All because True North has done this. And any one of these men, you could have gone up to them and gone, Tell me about the days you attacked the Benjamites. Oh, let me tell you about that. It was a holy crusade. It was magnificent. We showed those Gibeonites. Let me tell you what the Gibeonites, the, the, what they did, what the Benjamites did. Let me tell you. And each one would have rationalized. And we had a priest with us. He started it. The priest started it. He informed us of this terrible atrocity. And they're all following Magnetic North and they're all thinking we have done the right thing. And yet you and I, not in that culture, with the Holy Spirit within us, we look at that and we go, really? Terrible. So to finish off with, in the next three or four minutes, where is True North in Judges? Where is it? Because you might want to go to one of the leaders and the judges, but all the judges have become corrupt as well. That's what happens with sin. It gets into everything. It affects everything. You might want to go to the, to, to the priesthood. Well, you can't even go to the priesthood because we saw the priests. Finally, we got to the priests all the way through. We got to the Levites and they are, they are just as corrupt. Where do you go? You don't go anywhere. It's not in there. It deliberately leaves you with this great big chasm inside, this yawing kind of oh, desire for justice, for righteousness, for true north. Where is it? Now, who's got their Bible open at 21, 25? Judges 21, 25. Now, remember, the Bible has been put together as a canon. That means whole, whole, like books have been brought together and put in specific orders by you know, inspired men. Maybe women helped as well. We don't know for sure. What is the very next verse after... Judges 21, 25. Ruth 1. In the days when what? The judges ruled. There was a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons. So where did these Levites come from again? And what features quite heavily? Bethlehem, the Levites. Now Ruth, in the time of Judges, we don't know exactly when. And some scholars have complained and go, Ruth seems so different to Judges because you read it and it's a love story. It's a romance. It's, it's very feel good. You know, apart from the start where, where people die. And, um, but that's, that's the nature. But here, you know, in Ruth, I won't go into it because I want you to read it yourself. And we don't have time today. But it's this beautiful story of redemption. You know, you get this lovely woman, Ruth, who comes from a pagan nation. This is happening sometime in all that other stuff when people are doing what. Do you realize that? This has happened sometime in the middle of Judges. And they've deliberately pushed it right here at the end of Judges so that you go. And in those days... Everyone did as they saw fit. And you're thinking, where's God? Where's the tabernacle? And then it's like, here it is. Because who is Ruth? And who is Boaz? Who are they? Why are they significant? They are David's grandparents. In those days, there was no king, Ruth. God's already at work in the middle. God, I feel tingles. In the middle of Judges, God is at work. And he takes, look, it's like his oasis in this horrible, not even a desert, like this, I don't know, like a volcano. And there's this little gardens and it's precious and God's preserving and he's keeping and he's got this and he's even going, ah, oh, he could use an Israelite woman, but I'll use a, 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 a woman from pagan nation because obviously Jesus will be the saviour for all. And you have this awesome, awesome picture of God protecting, preserving, ensuring that Jesus' grandparents are okay. David will come and David will be the great archetype of Jesus despite all the rubbish, the vileness. Of judges. So that's one place where true north, the true north points to Boaz and Ruth, but there's somewhere else as well. So you've got your king, David, that's being preserved in his family. 
Now, to finish off with, flick through Ruth, and you get to Ruth 4, 22. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. So actually great-grandparents, I think, of Boaz and Ruth. And what's the next one after that? Well, it's 1 Samuel, which Luke is going to bring us through in a few weeks. 1 Samuel. And what you get, do you realize that Samuel is the last judge of Israel? He's called that. So Judges isn't finished at Judges 21, 25, whatever it was. Judges finishes with Samuel. He is called, in Samuel, the last judge of Israel. And you'll remember the story of Samuel. We'll get into it more. I won't steal too much of Luke's thunder. But what you get is you get Hannah. Then Hannah gives birth, and it's a miraculous birth, gives birth to Samuel. And Samuel, we're told, is, remember that famous story? I speak now for your servant is listening. Where, where is he when that happens? Well, the tabernacle. He's in the tabernacle, sleeping in the very presence of God. It's such a beautiful picture. He's sleeping there. Well, he's not supposed to be there, <laughs> but he is. But he's there, and God speaks to him in the very presence of God. And by the way, what has happened to the priesthood by then? Corrupt. Eli, Hophni, all of those dudes, you know, doing terrible things. And so if Samuel, this makes perfect sense, if Samuel did write Judges, he was very keen to show how the priesthood had got corrupted. But now again, God shows up, speaks to Samuel. Samuel restores the priesthood. He, he, restore, like he brings in God, uh, David's kingdom, which is like King Arthur kind of stuff, King David coming. And he points to the future and he says, there's a better David coming. There's a better Samuel coming. There's a, there's a king, a prophet, and a priest who has given himself up for his people. He has given himself up for that concubine. And I, I look forward to seeing her one day. I believe she will be in the kingdom of God fully restored because only Jesus could do that. No one else could do that after what happened to her. So I just want to finish there. It's a little bit different than perhaps I normally preach, but I encourage you to read the story of Ruth. I encourage you to read ahead into 1 Samuel. You do meet God Almighty. You do meet the true north inside Judges. Sets up this horrible absence, this horrible vacancy in your thinking, and it's Jesus shaped. It's David shaped. It's Samuel shaped. God doesn't give up on his people. He could have. They'd certainly given up on him, gone their own way. So let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your magnificent word. Judges is a troubling book at times. But I thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave those people. And therefore, you didn't leave us because you came to us when we least deserved it. And honestly, I can see even in our own society, if you left us alone, if you did not give us your spirit, if you did not give us your, your word, your value system, we would be exactly the same. We would be in a vile state. And instead, you gave us Jesus. You gave us your word. You gave us the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we have law. We have order. Many would not even acknowledge this now, but we do in our society. And I thank you for it. I thank you that most people in our society would look at this story and be appalled by it. In other cultures, they wouldn't necessarily be appalled. They're appalled because deep down within the DNA of their conscience is still your value system. And I thank you for that. And I just pray that we would live that out and embody it. And we know that you didn't just come to judge. You came to sacrifice yourself, to give yourself for every so-called concubine, every woman who was treated so terribly, every man that has experienced injustice. And you even come for those that perpetrate it. And if they will submit and humble themselves, they too can be changed forever. What a saviour. What grace. We want to remember you today as we prepare ourselves for communion. We want to remember that this table represents peace, law, order. 
It represents the fact that you dwell amongst us. So help us, Lord, to remember that well today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Andrew, would you mind breaking the bread for us today, brother? Thank you. So in your own time, come and take of the bread. We'll keep the cup and we'll drink the cup together and then we'll probably sing one more song, I think.